0: Hello, and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. G'day, everyone, and welcome to JOSPT Insights for 2024. As we prepare for a big year of JOSPT Insights interviews, we're easing you into 2024 by recapping a few of our most loved and most listened to episodes from 2023. These are wonderful chats with some of the leading clinician scientists in the musculoskeletal rehabilitation field. They're the episodes you don't want to miss, which is why we really wanted to replay them for you now. It is such a thrill to hear how much you all love the JOSPT Insights podcast thank you for all of the support. We really love making the podcast and sharing with you the thoughts of all the fantastic guests who join us on JOSPT Insights. Thanks to them. And of course, a very big thanks to all of you. Okay, here's today's episode. Today, it is such a treat to have two gentle giants of the physiotherapy, physical therapy, research world on JOSPT Insights. Professors Peter Kent and Peter O'Sullivan from Curtin University in Perth, Australia, are here to share, on behalf of the whole trial team, the results of their RESTORE trial, which was published in the very prestigious medical journal The Lancet at the beginning of May this year. Does cognitive functional therapy herald a revolution in how clinicians support people to manage living with back pain? Let's find out. Welcome to JOSPT Insights, Peter and Peter.
1: Thank you thanks for having us.
0: Today, we're talking about your RESTORE trial that was published a few weeks ago in the Lancet Medical Journal. And I think the first thing I should say is a big, big congratulations on a very important and a very impressive and relevant trial to what we do as musculoskeletal rehabilitation specialists. Peter Kent, why don't you set the scene for us today? Let's hear the short version of the RESTORE trial, what you did what you found and that'll set us up nicely to dive in what into what the results mean for the clinicians who are tuning in to us today.
1: So this was a large clinical trial. There were 492 patients who were randomized into three groups. One of those groups was usual care. So whatever care these people with chronic persistent low back pain were seeking. That was the first group. The second group was cognitive functional therapy only. And the third group was cognitive functional therapy that was augmented by the wearing of wearable wireless sensors, which could provide individualized biofeedback, both in the clinic and at home or at work. Probably the biggest headline is that we saw large and clinically important effects for the two CFT groups compared with usual care. Interestingly, those large effects were not just at the end of the treatment period, but they persisted to the end of the 12 month follow up. And those large clinical effects were not just for the primary outcome of pain related activity limitation, but for all of the secondary outcomes. It's unusual. You see large sustained effect that are not patchy. So it looks like something changed, something important changed and stayed changed. So the secondary outcomes were stuff like pain intensity and anxiety, depression, pain self-efficacy, and treatment satisfaction. Both the CFT groups were more cost-effective than usual care. And just to put a number on that, at a societal level, the cost savings were more than $5,000 Australian dollars per patient, mostly through improvements in productivity and both paid and unpaid work. The addition of the wearable sensor biofeedback did not improve the treatment effect. And lastly, CFT was safe. So we saw no difference in the frequency of adverse events in the CFT groups relative to usual care.
0: That's a, a lovely summary, Peter. And it's it's interesting and, as you say, really noteworthy that all of these outcomes, not only the primary outcome, but everything had a, a quite similar response when you looked at the three different groups in your trial. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the wearables. Why, what, what was the thinking behind the wearables? Why did you think that that might make a difference?
1: So we have been doing a body of research using wearables to try and understand a bit more about the relationship between change in movement and change in other outcomes, things like activity limitation and pain. Because it's such a central focus of, if you like, the physiotherapy canon. We put a lot of effort into changing movement. What we wanted to do was to understand that a bit more. So that's from a mechanistic perspective. And that's, that's research that will still come out of the data.
0: The other thing that I would like to highlight for the audience is you had a lot of different clinical sites here. You had a lot of people involved delivering the intervention, and we will get to talk about the CFT intervention in in more detail. But I wonder if you'd like to to comment on how you set this up, how many different sites, how did you make all of that work, Peter?
1: (laughs) Well, we have worked for a long time with Mike Hancock, who's in Sydney. So this occurred in Australia, and we were in Perth on one seaboard of the continent, And Mike was on the others. And the other is more populous. So it made sense to run it as a multi-site trial. But the CFT trials that had been done before typically had between one and three clinicians. And we wanted to see, could we take a cohort of people who had minimal exposure to CFT? Could we train them to competency and do that in a kind of scale
0: now, Peter O'Sullivan, I can't believe it's been you've kept your mouth shut for this amount of time in a podcast. So let, let's hear from you it's now. It's unusual. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Peter, what do we know about chronic low back pain and the things that drive chronic low back pain?
2: We've had so much research come out, I think, in the last 10 years, particularly, that gives us such a better insight to this condition. What we know that patients believe, or often what clinicians believe, is that. Pain is a sign that your body's damaged and that we have all these rules that we set up to be careful with your body and sit straight and be careful when you bend and brace your core. And if it hurts, be careful and avoid stuff, you know, that provokes your pain. And it sets this loop up where people become frightened. So much scanning that happens now that identifies these features on a scan like Disc degeneration and disc bulges, which we know are normal in pain free populations. And we give them as diagnoses that frighten people and kind of lead them down this dreadful path of becoming very distressed, fearful, losing confidence in their body and starting to avoid and overprotect the body. So CFT basically tries to crack that open in a sense. It explores both the biological and the psychosocial aspects of pain. It identifies the factors that are relevant for each individual because we know they're different for everyone. It's very person-centered. So it kind of reaches the it meets the call of what pay, people with chronic pain are calling for is like, you know, they want partnership, they want to be validated, they want to be listened to, they want empathy, they want guidance, they want coaching. Through that lens of patient-centeredness and through the lens of what we know good guideline-based care is, it kind of structures this journey where the clinician works as a coach to help the patient reframe their understanding of pain through their own lived experience. That pain is less about damage and more about overprotection. And it then maps this process through their own lived experience of learning to relax and re-engage with movement and activity in a graduated way. So that's the exposure part and then re-engaging with life, so making their goals the centre of the treatment. So there are kind of these three key themes. One is around that positive reframing of understanding of pain, understanding the the factors in their own experience and how they interact, building the confidence in the body and pain control as part of that, becoming less protective, and then re-engaging with life, getting back to physical activity, giving strategies to get you know to restore sleep, manage stress. And in that journey, slowly getting the person in control of their pain so that they can self-manage. And that's really the ultimate goal.
0: It's great. And tell me, how do you deliver it? Is this a a tele-rehabilitation approach or a a digital approach or is it in person? How does it work?
2: So it's in person. It's perfectly suited to tele. And, and in fact, we had to do some tele in the trial, which was not a problem because it's the kind of intervention where it's much more about coaching. And through Zoom, you can, you know, you can do behavioral experiments, which is central to this approach of like, you know, the person might be frightened of bending. So it's like, let's go through a process of like seeing what happens if you begin, get your, relax your body and re-engage with it in a different way and actually not protect it and do the things you think are going to hurt you and you realize they're actually not as bad as what you thought. In person is how we designed the trial. Most of the trial was in person. But it can, it can be, and we're interested in that delivery of telehealth as an option.
0: And sticking with you, Peter, how did you train the clinicians to deliver this CFT intervention? We heard from Peter Kent that you had a number of, of clinicians spread across the vast <laughs> breadth of Australia.
2: As Peter said, the previous trials had trained, like in shutton um, fersens trial and Mary Keith's trial, there were three therapists. That was much more manageable. The idea, and this is really something we were very interested in, could we take people who weren't, you know, had an interest in this and train them up? So we asked them to first give us a video of them working with someone with chronic low back pain so we could kind of assess where they were at. We developed this competency checklist, which kind of covered things like, you know, interview technique, person-centered communication, exploring patient beliefs, emotions, stuff that physios are not very, we know they're not confident and don't feel skilled to do. And then how you manage work with someone who's someone's distress, goal setting, physical examination. So covered a whole lot of stuff around what we saw were the key components of this intervention. And then we staged this training program where we first taught knowledge and then we taught basic skills. And then we basically worked with them with patients so we'd run these small workshops with each one of them would treat a patient with chronic disabling low back pain within the group and the trainer would work with them and we'd support them and then they go away and practice for a month and come back and we would do it again and over the period of like three to four sessions or three to four workshops the therapists would get to watch each other working with the patient they would get to see where the roadblocks were They get to, you know, they have patients who break down and cry and and we discuss how you might manage that, how you might support someone, how you might navigate roadblocks. So it was like real-time working with patients with pain, building the self-efficacy of the of the physio and the skill set to manage what were a really tough group of patients. And I think this is the other thing, is these were not a bit of ache and pain. These people were profoundly disabled. And there were patients that a lot of the physios are like, we don't see these people. <laughs> they're, they're people sitting in pain clinics or, you know, who've often failed primary care. They're a tough group. That was very empowering for the physios as well of like actually working in real time with the support of a mentor and, the, and their colleagues that kind of created this community of support to build their confidence and competence around managing this tough cohort.
0: And what I'm hearing is there's almost two research programs going on in parallel here. There's the research program of the of of working with patients and the research program of working with the therapists.
2: We actually saw this as a double intervention. It's interesting the physio said you're doing CFT on us. this was their own exposure training, this was their own behavioral training. And the thing that really fascinated us was you know I think we have we go, oh, yeah, we do this. When you actually watch your own, Behaviors, you realize we have all these blind spots. We say stuff and do stuff and signal stuff that we don't even know that that we're doing. And it's not until we get to have that feedback and see ourselves in real time. So we would film each of those encounters, and the physio would then watch themselves and have to self-rate themselves against this competency checklist. And they go, "I had no idea when the patient." said that tough thing, I giggled and looked away or crossed my arms or closed down and I shut the conversation down. And it was when a person might've said something about, you know, the impact that pain had had on their life and they were not comfortable with it. And they signaled it often from nonverbal cues.
0: It sounds amazing. And I'm looking forward to what's coming beyond this trial that we're talking about. And we'll get to what's, what are the next steps for research in a moment. But Peter Kent, before we get there, what I'd really like to hear from you is why you and the team think this cognitive functional training works to reduce pain.
1: From my perspective, I think it meets the directions that a, a large body of evidence that's not us, that's the whole research community, is pointing towards that it looks like individualised and person-centred care is a way forward. Patients seem to like it. Whether it's more effective requires trial designs that we haven't done, but but we are meeting where the evidence is pointing. In terms of the specific mechanisms I think it's so interesting that everything changed and we don't really understand from a research perspective what were the key drivers of that. And that's a body of work to try and unpick it if, if it's important to unpick it at a mechanistic level because it's really important to remember this is an individualised intervention. So what works for one person may not work for another person. But in this trial, we have set up some lines of research in the data to try and unpick some parts of that. And one of them I alluded to earlier, which was about the relationship between a change in movement and a change in other important clinical outcomes. We have uh, two projects running with PhD students who are looking at the co-occurrence of change over time to try and understand is there a temporal relationship between the change of movement and change in other things, which one comes first, but also the Psychosocial aspects, so measures of distress like pain, uh, sorry, like depression and anxiety, people's self efficacy. When do these things change? And, And what's the relationship of that change temporarily to the change in other outcomes? I think it's a challenge when there are different things which are important for different people. And so that's a methodological challenge for an individualized assessment. But I still think that if There are strong drivers. We will pick them up in the data, or I hope we'll pick them up in the data, so we better understand what are the important things at a a whole kind of population level. Another line of research we're doing, which is to say, can we identify for whom this appears to be working, and perhaps more importantly, for whom it isn't working? And what might we learn from that about for whom it isn't working? Because there, there may be, for particular subgroups of people, particular things that we're not addressing well. And it would be really good to understand that.
2: The other line of research that we're, we're involved in is qualitative. So Rob Schutz, he's a clinical psychologist who worked in our team. He was able to do a prospective qualitative journey of a bunch of these people going through the intervention to kind of unpack what was going on in their minds as they were going through it. Now, we don't have that data yet. But the kind of themes that we hear patients say are really simple things like, I thought I was damaged. I thought I was screwed. I had all these messages based on scans that my back was screwed. And I'd tried all this treatment and this was my lot. I was terrified of movement. And the things that we anecdotally have heard from our other studies as well as like this mindset shift that pain does not mean I'm damaged It's not a good measure of it, that actually building confidence to use my body and not protect it and re-engage with stuff is safe. And actually, it makes me feel better. And this building of confidence and this sense of building self-efficacy of like, yeah, I can can take control of this. I've been so dependent on medication and treatments and actually given up. And actually, I've actually had this new sense of agency. Managing flare-ups is the other really big one. You know, every time I had a flare-up, I thought my back was screwed. i have damaged it again. Terrified me. And the other one was this kind of reconnecting with the body. You know, there was this vigilance of pain, but this complete lack of awareness of the body. And I think what CFT does really well, it gives people a renewed connection with the body. It's like this is not now a threat, it's, it's a part of your body you can build trust in. There was an infographic that we did of the patient journey, which was informed by people who had gone through the intervention. And they also talked about this body mind connection. This was holistic. But also that it had this kind of ripple effect to other parts of their life. It didn't just help their back pain. It helped the way they interacted in other aspects of their life. So it kind of speaks to a really interesting mindset, behavioral reconnection thing that's going on, which is really complicated.
0: The complexity that you're talking that you're both talking about there is is why it's so critical to bring the qualitative research perspective into a trial. I think we're getting much better and understanding the value of qualitative research and what that brings to a big clinical trial. As you're both describing, there's so much to this that's about understanding people's experiences and and the change in their in their whole lives that that doesn't lend itself to numbers. You need the qualitative research to really understand what's going on there. And I think Peter Kent you made the point really early on in the podcast today that this patient group it wasn't people who were having their first experience of a niggle of back pain these were people who'd who'd been through clinical practice who'd been through the ringer potentially who'd had lots of treatments that hadn't worked and and were potentially at their wits end I wonder how that might influence their experience of of an intervention like CFT
1: It's such an interesting question clear, because we didn't know what this population would look like. We we had a set of inclusion and exclusion criteria which were more broad than is typical for people who do trials of this population. But the people who actually were in the trial had a median duration of four years of an episode so that they had been having episodes and they considered them to be somewhat continuous for at least four years. They had had lots of experience of seeking care and what we hadn't anticipated was that many of them had given up care seeking. So they had been care seeking, and one of the inclusion criteria had to be, they had to have sought care six weeks or earlier prior to being engaged in the trial. But interestingly, what we found was although half of them were taking medication at baseline for their back. And some of that medication was quite strong medication. Over the period of the intervention, only around a third of them were seeking care. And anecdotally, many of them said that they had given up seeking care. And it's interesting to put it in the context of a, a couple of us in the team were involved in a a PhD that was done in Denmark, of a, a guy called Søren Moser, who had 10 years of data from the Danish registries where he looked at care-seeking for people with chronic musculoskeletal pain. And what he found with this trajectory analysis was that the idea that people who have severe pain, and in the, C- the Restore trial, people had pain which is 6 out of 10, and they had disability which was around... 12 and a half out of 23, which is quite high on the roll in Morris. So they were a disabled population who had high daily pain. We have this expectation they must be seeking care. And what we found and what he found is that large numbers of people give up because it's not working for them anymore.
0: Yeah, and building on this idea of of musculoskeletal pain, Pete O'Sullivan, I wonder is CFT an intervention for back pain alone? It sounds like a lot of the building blocks of this intervention are generalist and could potentially apply to other musculoskeletal chronic musculoskeletal pain conditions.
2: Yeah, so that's something we're really interested in doing, and we've been involved with some uh, pilot research. So JP Canero has been involved with some research, like a feasibility trial for. People with knee arthritis have been told the only option is to have a knee replacement. So we're particularly interested in the groups of people in our community who have not responded to first-line primary care, who kind of get caught in this horrible space of like, I've done it or what's left. And it's like, I'm on the scrap heap. And that's what the qualitative research is telling us that those people think that could be for knee arthritis or hip pain. And we did a qualitative study looking at people who have basically been told their hips are screwed and there's nothing, you know, just got to wait until you get old before you have a hip replacement. What are we doing with those people in our population? We're interested in the broader musculoskeletal landscape because we see that it kind of highlights what best care we think should look like, and that's what the best care guidelines are telling us, that we our care has to be person-centred. It has to address the biopsychosocial like barriers to recovery. It should be empowering people with self-management. It should be educating them. It kind of ticks those boxes. So we're particularly interested in that question more broadly beyond back pain i know you know through twitter we hear oh well you know these people you know the the control the usual care group didn't get much care so you know if we compare it to manual therapy that they've done it <laughs> like it's it's like you know when you've done it all it doesn't make much sense to do it again like we and we heard that we hear it from story after story and we've got we've been able to capture some beautiful um videos that we'll put up soon of just really just this sense of despair, I'm exhausted and I've given up, and I've lost trust. I think that's the other thing. I've actually lost trust in healthcare. You know, this is my lot. And we can do better than that, I think, in our in our healthcare landscape. So actually we need to give hope both to clinicians and patients to go, actually, don't lose trust. <laughs> you know, we, 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 there are ways in which we can support you. And, of course, this is not a panacea. Not like these people all got cured. But what they did say is they liked it and that they were engaging with life. And like Peter said, the cost savings were re-engaging with work. You know, their self-efficacy was better. They were less fearful. They had less catastrophic thoughts around their pain. So lots of positive things shifted. There's lots of signals here that this is something that's good for people. And clinicians found it really rewarding because they didn't have this pressure to fix people all the time. There's that kind of, Sense relief of like God, I don't. It's not on me anymore.
0: This is a, I think, a, a fantastic case study of research person centered holistic research and where I would love to see musculoskeletal research continue to move so I want to say a big congratulations to you both and to the the broader trial team Pete Kent I know that this was a, a, a big effort like all research is and I no doubt you have some shout outs you've you've given a couple of shout outs both of you I'm going to give you the opportunity to shout out anyone that you would like to on the podcast as we wrap up today
1: it would be tempting to go to the Chief investigators. But I really think we should start at the other end. And the big shout out should be to the 500 patients or nearly 500 who said, Yes, you know, I'm up for this and I'd like to give it a go. I think the clinicians who, as we said earlier, were willing to put themselves through being trained in a way which exposed them. And that wasn't easy, but of course, that was a great growth opportunity. But, you know, thank them for their bravery and thank them for hanging in. Uh, over some years in the trial. Also to the support staff, you know, the people who are often overlooked, you know, the people who managed things from a technical perspective, the people who were in ethics and contracts and finance and all those wonderful people who lend their really important skills and are often overlooked because it takes a village to raise a child and it takes a village to run a trial of this size as well. Of course, to the trial team, both the folk who were the research assistants and the people who ran the trial centres in each city, and to the chief investigators, this really is kind of a six-year exercise. And so everyone really deserves some part of that satisfaction. And there's so much more still to do, and we'll keep at it.
2: I know Peter Kent's here, and he's one of these guys who you'll never see on social media. And same with Ann Smith. These are two amazing human beings who are just work their guts out and you will never see their names on social media. We are just so deeply grateful that Peter came from Denmark to Perth really with this trial in mind. We're so grateful he did that. And, you know, Anne Smith's been a really central part of our whole research journey, which has really evolved across 20 years. It wouldn't have happened without her. Really important. And, you know, then other... You know, people on our team like Jay Picanero, who was involved with the training, a really wonderful human being who's been was really s- sort of backed me up around the training of the clinician. So it's speaking out for the people who won't put their hands up, I think. Unless you do something like this, you have no idea of the extraordinary work and commitment that people do, well beyond any paid hours. And it's very easy to kind of take pot shots at researchers and bag them out in social media, but my God. They have they're not doing this for money, I can tell you.
0: <laughs> no, and I'm so grateful to all of you for the incredible work and so proud of you all. It's so exciting to see physical therapy, physiotherapy in the lancet of all places. And that really is a testament to not only the hard work, but but the value that physiotherapy, physical therapy, musculoskeletal rehabilitation can bring to all of the patients that we're that we're seeing and people who are, are struggling with musculoskeletal health issues. So thank you both, Peter Kent, Peter O'Sullivan, for joining me on JOSPT Insights today. It's been such a pleasure.
2: Thank you so much, Claire.
1: Thanks, Claire.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn,